The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. It is 5 a.m. on Wall Street, and here is your top five at five. Waking up with a black eye after the market's worst day since September and futures, they are lower once again. Big losses for big tech as the Nasdaq does something for the first time in more than 20 years. Elon Musk suspending the Twitter accounts of more than half a dozen journalists, apparently, over concerns for his personal safety. Details ahead. Shutdown averted. For now, the Senate passing a late-night spending bill to keep the lights on for one more week. And in China, the rapid reversal of its COVID-0 policies, sparking a surge in new cases. And now Wall Street handicapping what it could mean for the country's growth. It is Friday, December 16th. This is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Happy Friday, everybody, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Thank you for getting up for us or staying up for us either way. All right, let's get right down to the markets and your money coming off a rough couple of days. If we've got that graphic and that ominous animation, you know it's been a tough couple of days. Let's how things are looking right now. We are seeing Dow futures down a bit. NASDAQ futures down about 1%. In fact, all the major averages, they're indicating a drop of about 1% or maybe slightly more right now. But again, long way to go. Fair value is actually in the green, but right now futures are down. It's very early, though. Always take futures at this hour with a gigantic grain of sea salt. Now, we had a big down day yesterday. The NASDAQ 100 falling more than 3%. The S&P 500 down about 2.5%, both seeing their worst days since early November. For its part, the Dow closed down more than 700 points for its worst day since September. But, as always, context is key. Keep this in mind. Yeah, it's been a lousy couple of days. But the S&P 500, believe it or not, is actually up about 8% since October 1st, meaning right now we're on pace for actually one of the, the best quarters for stocks In a long, long time, you look at yesterday and the day before, oh, my God, we're doomed. Then you realize, wait a minute, we're actually much higher than the late September lows. So two ways really to look at it. All right. One thing that was interesting about the stock sell-off, there's a couple things that were interesting, okay, because all the headlines said recession fears sent stocks down. Really? Bond yields didn't move at all. In fact, the 10-year yield right now is pretty much exactly where it was 24 hours ago one month ago, and three months ago. Bond market tends to lead the equity market. And if stocks did sell off because of recession worries, certainly don't tell oil that, because oil hung tight. Right now, we're seeing the price of oil pretty much again where it was this time yesterday, maybe slightly lower, but it's up a couple of bucks, up a couple of dollars than where it began the week. We're at 74.19. Remember on Monday, we talked about falling below 70. So just keep those things in mind. All right. 
There's a lot of things that go on with stocks that don't happen with bonds or oil. That, that's my point. All right. Cryptocurrencies, as you can see, also down across the board. But the price of Bitcoin is still holding steady, just above 17000 All right, let's get a check on the overnight action in Asia. And what is a lot of red on the screen in Europe as well? Arabili Gumede is standing by in our London newsroom with, I guess there's a little green behind here, Arabili. So it's not all doom and gloom on this Friday. Happy Friday, by the way. Yeah, it's a good Friday to you too, Brian. Look, that's probably the only bit of green we're seeing. Uh, and this is out in Asia, right? You're seeing the Hang Seng really go into uh, some slightly green territory then across the board, having seen it be the, work, uh, the biggest loser then across the Asian sphere yesterday. So today, perhaps a little bit better off. All of this negativity, though, does follow on from the ECB, the European Central Bank's decision yesterday, as well as the Bank of England and the Swiss National Bank, all to hike interest rates by 50 basis points. So you are seeing negativity follow through from the U.S. market into Asia and that European market then also going into negativity. So we'll shift to that uh, European bosses then and see how they're faring. And this is why they're all down, right? The uh, president of the European Central Bank, uh, Christine Lagarde, echoing and saying that the sentiment now is not to give up on that inflation fight, but to continue to press on. We even saw PMI numbers come out today. Yes, better than expected, but still in contractionary territory. So the fight against inflation is not over. In fact, some of the ECB uh, governing council members are saying that 50 basis point hikes may be possible in in February as well as in March. So that first quarter, still more hikes are possible. So down the market goes for now. A lot of it certainly based off that interest rate action. All right, Arabili, appreciate it. You have a great weekend, my man. Thank you very much. All right, right now, let's get a few of this morning's top headlines that are happening on this Friday. Savannah now is here with those. Good morning, Savannah. Good Friday morning to you, Brian. Let's start with Twitter because it's suspending the accounts of roughly half a dozen journalists, all of whom have been covering the platform and its new owner, Elon Musk. Musk says it's because they were apparently reporting the location of his private jet, something he felt was a risk to his family's safety. The move comes a day after Twitter changed rules surrounding accounts that track private jets, including one owned by Musk. A new wave of COVID-19 infections is sweeping across Beijing in the wake of its abrupt rollback of its COVID-0 policies. The city reporting visits to its fever clinics are up 16 times from just one week ago. Wall Street is already taking notice. J.P. Morgan, for one, saying the country's rapid reopening could result in a, quote, severe near-term downturn as surging cases could create a health shock that outweighs any boost to economic activity from the relaxed restrictions. And the Senate approving a one-week extension of federal government funding, averting a partial government shutdown that was scheduled to begin at midnight on Saturday. The measure gives lawmakers one more week to negotiate and pass a comprehensive spending bill for the fiscal year ending September 30th, Brian. All right, we got another week. Another we'll see week. what happens at the end of that week as well. well. It's a deja vu all over it again. Really so is, Brian, we'll see in a few over. minutes. It, it, it's just Groundhog Day in <laughs> D.C. all the time. That's what it feels time. like. I know. Savant, that's it. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to see the shadow. I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> I Silvana, don't either. thank you. <laughs> you got it. All right. Yeah, all right. Savant, thanks. All right, let's get back down to Wall Street. And your, oh, there's that ominous graphic again. Stocks looking to extend yesterday's sell-off. The S&P coming off its biggest percentage drop in more than a month. The index now down more than 4% for December. Still more than 30% from its all-time high, but 
like we said at the top of the show, actually on pace for one of its best quarters ever. Joining us now is Craig Johnson, Chief Market Technician at Piper Sandler. Uh, Craig, we need you. We need you. Thank you. It's like 2.30 or whatever in the morning, wherever you might be in the Midwest, So we have, and, and 12 degrees. So thank you very much for getting up. We need your views. This week has stunk. Yesterday was pretty rough. But I tried to make the point at the top of the show, we're still up 8% on the S&P this quarter. How do you read the market setup right now? So, Brian, thank you for having me on, and thank you for the uh, opportunity to, to drive uh, a Bronco in the snow, which was uh, quite delightful this morning. <laughs> so as I look at the setup for this market, we've kind of thinking about 2023 and also from here to year end. we got to put a lot of this into context. This week we had CPI come out. We also had uh, the Fed decision. And then today we've got a huge options expiration taking place. And this market has been essentially, uh, I think there's close to $4 trillion in options that are expiring today. And this market has been sort of stuck in this trading range. But when you dive below the surface, Brian, what I do see happening is I've got more stocks and uptrends than downtrends at this point in time, uh, looking at all stocks above a 25 million market cap. Yes, when you look at the chart of the S&P 500, we saw that the downtrend resistance line off of those January highs. But using the dangerous words, it's different this time. I got to make the observation that I got six out of 11 of the S&P sectors that are now back above their 200-day moving average. I got more than six. I got more than 50% of stocks in some form of an uptrend. Yeah, we may get a little bit of a pullback and a setback here, Brian. But I think from here to year end, I do think we are going to get the Santa Claus rally. And I do think we're going to see this market find some footing near the 50-day moving average, which is sitting around yeah. 38.61, and then sort of rally up from that. You know, the one thing I think we have been consistent on in this program, because we learn from very smart guys like you, is that market structure is such a key aspect to where things go in the near term and even in the medium term. Options set up, shorts, longs, things like that. The price of bond, bonds didn't move. Oil yep. didn't move. So I found this sort of blaming the market yesterday on, quote, recession fears, maybe a little bit specious at best because other things didn't move. Sounds like you're kind of saying market structure, i.e. all this option set up, maybe some you know short, long positions that likely contributed to what we have seen this week. Absolutely, Brian. And I'd also add into this discussion, uh, when we talk about recessions, if we think about when these, these recessions are actually declared, you're usually already in the recession by upwards of sometimes eight months. And usually most recessions since 1929, a vast majority of them have lasted less than a year. And in every recession since 1920, you have found the bottom in the equity market while you're in the recession, all but one. So the odds would suggest that if we're already in the recession, maybe a lot of the bad news is already priced in. And let me also just add, if you come back and you look at the Lipper money flow data, Brian, there's $4.1 trillion sitting in money market funds right now. You're more than a trillion dollars higher than where you were pre-pandemic. And if you look at the outflows wow. of equities just last week and the week before, You've got a huge amount of money, some of the largest dollars coming out of equities and going into money market funds that you've had since the March lows of 2020. Again, if people have wanted to sell, they've probably already done it. 
All right. Yeah. You know what? I care what happens today. I care what happens on Monday. I care about every day because our viewers care and it's their money and their livelihoods that matter. But we probably care more about what's going to happen 12 months from now, six months from now. A lot of calls for short term weakness, maybe early next year, first, second quarter, market goes down, then rebounds. I think that's your view. I think that's J.P. Morgan and some others view. What do you see as the the medium and longer term trajectory of the S&P or, or the market in general, Craig? So, Brian, I think this is kind of like, you know, a little Dr. Seuss hop on pop. You know, we've got a hop. We're going to have a drop and we're going to end with the year with a pop. And I think the hop has still got more room to go over the next, say, 30 days to 60 days. We could trade up toward 4,200. And then I think at that point in time, as we get into the next sort of Fed meeting converse, uh, and sort of guidance that comes out, I think you could set yourself up for a drop. But again, that drop really creates what we think could be a right shoulder low in terms of the market. And then we think as we look forward into the end of uh, 2023, we see a price objective of 46.25. So we think there's going to be decent upside, about 17, 18% upside. And then again, if you think about it from coming wow. off those, you could be more than 20, 30% coming off those lows. So timing, these kind of shows, Brian, your kind of commentary, these things are going to be really helpful for, for your uh, listeners to tune into to stay abreast of what's happening with the market. Uh, although it so- sounds like we've got to hold our nose maybe in the first part of the new year. I think, I think yes, we're going to get this kind of setback and correction, but that's really going to be, I think, potentially a final washout uh, from our perspective, just looking at price and thinking about historical recessions and timing of these recessions. Again, Brian, the market usually bottoms all but one time since 1920 while you're in the recession. So that's what we got to keep into perspective. That, that could have been an RBI. The market usually bottoms going back 100 years in a recession. Well, Craig, we appreciate you driving that Bronco in the snow. The Bronco can handle it. You can handle it. And we appreciate it. Craig, thank you very much. Have a great thank day, you. my man. Thank you. All right. When we come back, have borrowing costs finally peaked? Your next guest maybe has some good news on rates. Plus, a closer look at big tech after the NASDAQ does something for the first time in 20 years. Later on, FTX back in bankruptcy court just days after those damning testimonies on the Hill. we got a lot more to do. Glad you're up with us, and we are back right after this. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome back and good Friday morning. Let's talk treasuries and bonds and borrowing costs. All of it actually remaining relatively flat following the Fed's rate hike decision, despite the central bank sticking to its more hawkish tone. A number of bond investors maybe not buying into what the Fed is selling or 
They've already sold what the Fed is selling. Thursday's weak economic data further fueling bets. The Fed will soon have to pivot to a less aggressive policy over rising recession risks. But what does that mean for borrowing costs going forward? Let's bring in Priya Mishra, Global Head of Rate Strategy at TD Securities. Priya, great to have you back on. I made the point at the top of the show to note that, yes, yeah, stocks tanked yesterday, and it's all recession fears, but the bond market didn't move, and 10-year yields are exactly where they were three months ago because the bond market leads. It does not follow. So what is the bond market telling you right now? Sure. So I think the the bond market is is clearly in, in the recession camp. I mean, the the flattening of the yield curve, the inversion of the yield curve, the fact that the 10 year has gone from, you know, well north of 4% to now even below 3.5% over the last month, I think the market has been grappling with a couple of issues. I think number one, the Fed suggesting that they can slow down the pace, I think has, has improved market, I think, perception of where that end point of the hiking cycle is. I mean, we're debating 4.75 or 5 and a quarter. So I think there is some greater understanding of where the Fed might stop. But I think if you look at the long end, the fact that that's leading is the market pricing in a recession sometime by the middle of next year. I actually do think uh, uh, that we're going to head into a recession. So I think some of that move is justified in the long end. I do think it's a little early. The data is strong. I think the consumer is resilient. I actually see that slowdown happening more at the end of 2023. But I think the market's forward looking and it's pricing in this recession, the uh-huh. lagged impact of everything uh, 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 that the Fed has uh, has already done. Well, not all recessions are created equal, are they? I mean, you've got the Great Recession of the financial crisis. Then you have, you know, 1990, where you had a downturn, but it was relatively brief. So what do you think, what, what do you think about the economy and what do you think the bond market is saying? Not, not about the recession, but because that's probably baked in, but how severe and long it might be, Priya. Right. So I think uh, I would agree with you. I, I think it's it's like it's more likely to be like the 1990 recession or the 2001 recession, shallow, because we don't see the same sort of leverage in the system that we saw in 2008. You know, um, so it's likely to be a more shallow recession. The bond market's pricing in about 200 basis points of, of rate cuts in 24. But where I, I struggle a little bit with is the length of the recession. I think there's a view that it's going to be a short, shallow recession. I think the Fed might be really constrained. I don't agree with the fact that the market's pricing in rate cuts at the end of next year. I think we're hearing very clearly from the Fed if inflation is not at 2%, they're going to struggle to provide any policy support. So while I think the Fed will be forced to start to cut in 2024, it's a little early for the market to be pricing in rate cuts next year. So I think it might be much longer longer uh, lasting recession than uh, than what the market's pricing in. And, and, and that's going to be really difficult for the market to absorb because we're used to the, that Fed put. We're used to mm-hmm. fiscal as well as monetary support. And I think the inflation backdrop, because we expect inflation to be pretty sticky on the way down because of wages, because of service inflation, that's yeah. going to really constrain policy support. So I think we might be in for a tough 23 because we look for that policy support. And I think the Fed's going to say, no, we're resolute. We still have an inflation problem yeah well we had a tough 22 so hoping for a better 23 but it doesn't sound like we're going to get it we'll see either way priya happy friday we're glad you're here with us appreciate your view as always have a great day and a good weekend we'll see you soon thank you thank you all right 
Oh, you're very welcome. All right, still on deck here on Worldwide Exchange. We've got an exclusive interview, a live interview with the CEO of CNH, Scott Wine. His take on global growth prospects and a surging stock. That is when WEX returns. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. All right, welcome back. FTX back in bankruptcy court this morning as its disgraced founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, sits in a Bahamas jail. CNBC tech reporter Mackenzie Segalos is here with where we stand right now and what the next steps may be. Mac, where do we stand right now? So at 10 a.m. today, Brian, the next hearing and the FTX bankruptcy gets underway. The official agenda has multiple line items, including dealing with complaints related to all that remnant FTX signage that's everywhere. For example, Miami is actively trying to terminate its $135 million naming rights agreement for the FTX arena. But what I'm specifically looking out for is this expedited motion by a consortium of news outlets, including The New York Times and the FT. Now, this group collectively objected to the redaction of the names of FTX account holders. Now, if the judge rules in favor of this motion, essentially agreeing to release investor names, institutional and individual. This is a huge deal. The largest accounts have balances over $200 million. And the argument here is that there's a legitimate right for the public to know who kept money on FTX, especially if these accounts belong to their money managers. Because remember, firms like BlackRock and Sequoia invested in FTX's VC round. So it would not be unreasonable to think that some or many of the largest accounts are in the names of large investment firms who have yet to disclose their full exposure to FTX. There's certainly precedent here. Investor and victim lists were disclosed in the Madoff proceedings and in the Lehman bankruptcy in 2008. And the FTX crisis is arguably analogous in the cryptocurrency space. Now, objections to this motion are due at the hearing. None are on the court docket so far, though, Brian. Victim list is sort of, you know, not being revealed. He was arrested the day before congressional testimony. I mean, there's a lot of red meat in this story. That aside, there is a report that Sam Bankman-Fried is again requesting bail because, of of course, he would. Any chance that he's going to have any luck getting bail? Right. So two days ago, a magistrate judge in the Bahamas called Bankman-Fried a flight risk and denied his bail request, ordering him to instead be held until at least February. But, you know, a source familiar with the matter told Reuters late yesterday that Sam Bankman-Fried is trying again, this time with a direct appeal to the Bahamas Supreme Court. Local media reporting that this bail application will be heard before that court on January 17th, but it is unclear whether they will be more sympathetic to Bankman-Fried's case. Let's talk about these clawbacks, okay? You've been reporting, great reporting, as always, Mac. I know you haven't been sleeping, but we appreciate it. All right, let's talk about clawbacks. We saw it with Madoff. Not comparing the two directly, but just financial fraud trial things. See where this goes. There were clawbacks with Madoff. So assuming there are some, let's hope there are, how much roughly money could FTX be looking to recapture 
through the bankruptcy process? You know, so one major tool that's available in the bankruptcy process is this clawback provision, which essentially allows trustees to review financial transactions at a company before it went bankrupt to see if anything was improperly transferred or if property was given away that should actually be part of the bankruptcy estate. These trustees have the power to claw that money back in some cases, sort of like a chargeback. And I spoke to multiple former federal prosecutors who say that the overwhelming majority of payments dating back a few years are indeed fair game if the feds can establish the funds used were all from fraud, which, as we know from that eight count indictment from the DOJ that was unsealed on Tuesday, they very much believe that the alleged fraud goes back to the start of the exchange in 2019. There's also this very specific 90-day window that's quite important to clawbacks. So any party who received funds during the three-month period preceding the bankruptcy, whether it's payment to celebrity endorsers like Tom Brady and Steph Curry or a vendor, trustees will be really scrutinizing all regular payments made in the course of business over that 90-day window. I'm told that one potential issue for these athlete and A-list celebrity endorsers in addition to others tied to the exchange, maybe whether they are characterized as insiders by virtue of their knowledge or connection to the debtor, which also factors into how clawbacks work and who's potentially on the hook to pay that money back. But, Brian, this is a process that will likely take years. Yeah, are they just endorsers? Are they insiders? Are they considered partners? We saw this with Voyager and other firms as well. You know, very quickly, McKenzie, we forget that Madoff went quickly because he basically spilled his guts to his kids and they went to the feds. There sounds like Ryan Salame, former insider as well, may have done the same thing, right? I mean, this didn't get found out. Sounds like there was a leaker. Ryan Salame said, hey, you know what? We've been doing bad things. Yeah, so we, we heard in a filing that two days before FTX uh, put in for bankruptcy. He was speaking to regulators in the Bahamas and alerting them to potential fraudulent transfers that were happening. He also, in the, in, in Salami is the co-CEO of FTX, and he made the point that there were only three people who were authorized uh, to give clearance to those kinds of transactions. Sam Bankman-Fried, one of the three people on that list. And then right after alerting the authorities and the regulators in the Bahamas, he got yeah. on a plane to D.C. So... That was the first confirmed case that we have of an insider at FTX who has indeed been speaking to the authorities. And apparently had a, re- a real estate and restaurant empire in Lenox, Massachusetts. <laughs> I mean, this, this is just unbelievable. Write the screenplay because there's going to be 80 people trying to write the show for HBO Max. You're the one. Mackenzie Sagalos, <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. All right. Thanks, Pat. All right, ahead. Buying into some massive weakness, your number one insider buy this week revealed. There's your chart. Do you know who it is? Seeing a lot of buying. And we'll give you the name coming up. All right, welcome or welcome back and good Friday morning. It's 532 on the East Coast. If you got to be somewhere at 530, you're late. Better get going. All right, let's kick off the half hour with the U.S. stock futures. They are, there's that graphic again. Go back to bed. Stock futures extending their losses this morning. We are seeing Dow futures down about 400 points. The NASDAQ is off more than 1%. Future selling has been picking up the steam a little bit in the past couple of hours. That follows yesterday's broad-based sell-off where stocks got hit hard. The NASDAQ 100 down more than 3%. S&P down 25 And it's been a tough week. But I will say this. 
Context is key. I know it's day to day. But the S&P 500 is actually up more than 8% this quarter, meaning we're actually on pace for one of the best quarters in a long time. We got a couple weeks to go. I get that. And we could wipe it all out. But still, last couple days have been tough. But overall, been a pretty good run since October 1st. All right. Not a good run yesterday for tech. It took it on the chin. You had outsized moves in the NASDAQ and the NASDAQ 100, as well as this morning. Everybody from Apple to Microsoft down yesterday and down again today as well. And check out this stat from Dow Jones. I'm, I'm annoyed because this would have made a great RBI. I guess it could still be. Yesterday marked the 84th time the NASDAQ has moved 2% or more either up or down this year. Up 2%, down 2%, 84 times. Why does that matter? Well, it is more than the 83 moves in 2008 and the most in a year since 2002 when it had 101 such swings. So we've got, I don't know what how many trading days left in the year. It's probably not 17, so we won't break the record. But still, closing in on that 2002 record for volatility. All right, a lot of numbers. It's early. Let's try to make some sense out of all of this with Sarah Kunst, Managing Director at Clio Capital. Sarah, good to have you on. I mean, the stats, neat, I guess, but a volatile year. Your clients probably care about what's going to happen six and 12 months from now. So what are you telling them? You know, I am telling them that, especially when you look at tech, tech was the tip of the spear on the way up, and it seems to be the same thing on the way down, right? You know, tech was the the first with historic highs, the remote work shift, and then now the the layoffs and 52-week lows. So, you know, I think that that we're going to see tech and these high-growth stocks just remain consistently at the front of the market movement. But, you know, they're not a monolith, right? Social media platforms like Snap, you know, Meta, Pinterest, all of those social media names, they have a lack of user engagement. They have an eroded ability to target ads. That's really different than Apple's problems, the chip makers, where, you know, they're dealing with waning demand. No one's buying as many new devices. And they also have massive supply chain issues in China still. So, you know, these aren't the companies that are all having the same problem, but it does feel like everybody's hurting across the board. Yeah, and it's been a terrible year, not only for stocks, for bonds as well. In fact, combined bonds and stocks, that's another RBI. It could be one of the worst years ever for both asset classes. But let's look, let's look forward and be optimistic. There's a, there's a country rock band I like, Sarah, called The Wild Feathers. And they have a song called Every Morning I Quit Drinking. Seems apt. And I only bring that up because it's New Year's approaching. I'm going to lose 100 pounds next year. I'm going to look like, you know, Ryan Reynolds. It never happens, but in my mind, it happens. You've got a, a, a trading thesis, new year, new you. Talk to us about you what look, that is like and why there are some stocks. That, that's it. Why are there some stocks attached to that, that January yeah, yeah, 1st yeah. dream? Exactly. You know, it's it's dating, it's dieting, it's self-improvement. I'm looking at names like Bumble, which, you know, I was previously a senior advisor there. The reality is the biggest online dating day of the year is early January. Everybody has that resolution that this is the year they're they're going to find somebody. And, and that reflects in, in the numbers. Right. And another one I'm actually going to keep an eye on is, is Duolingo. Right. Historically, they see a huge bump in growth in January. And those users stick around all year because this is the year they're going to get by 
bilingual. And so those are the kinds of trades I think to look at as, as we wind down 22 and hit 23. It's, we're we're going we're gonna to be we're going to look better. We're going to speak six languages. It's going to be an amazing year. What's your biggest fear, though, for next year, Sarah? Like what's what's the risk that's out there that you worry about the most? Is it recession? Is it escalation of Ukraine? Is it worsening of the energy crisis? What kind of keeps you up at night? I mean, it's all of those things. And I think that, that we're also looking at uh, increasing likelihood of default in places like China or in Africa, which, which owns a ton of debt to China. And I think that there are some global risks that aren't even priced in yet. But I think that 23 is going to be a tough year, especially the first six months. Uh, it seems to be the theme as well. But you know what? We'll focus on, on personal and family happiness. How about that? Because it sounds like the markets could have a rough go at the beginning of 23. Sarah, we th- appreciate you getting up early. Thanks for coming on Worldwide Exchange. Have a great Friday and a good weekend. We'll talk to you again soon. All right, time now for your weekly exclusive insider buying segment, where we highlight the top five stocks being bought the most by their C-suite level execs with their own money. The info comes with our thanks, as always, to Verity Platforms. And as always, we are counting you down five, two, one. Are you ready? We are. Let's do it. All right, number five, Illinois Tool Works, a $308,000 buy by a board member, buying into strength, by the way. That's stock up 20% this quarter. Stock four is VF Corp, the clothing and backpack maker, $490,000 buy by a board member. By the way, the first buy in this insider's seven years on the board. Stock number three is a new name, Veronis Systems. It is a New York City-based data security company, and they had a $500,000 buy by the CFO, he was also a buyer, by the way, in November, but was a seller before that, according to Verity. So this is a big reversal. All right, now to the top two insider buys of the week. Number two, public storage, $744,000 buy by the CEO, his first since becoming an insider six years ago. And by the way, this is PSA's second time on the insider buy list. That stock down about 20% this year. But the most insider buying of the week is a name you probably heard about on CNBC earlier this week. It was our mystery chart. It is SoFi Technologies, a $5 million buy by CEO Anthony Noto. Shares have been tanking, so Noto stepping up with a vote of confidence. He also bought $2.3 million back in May and in June. So Noto has been a pretty aggressive buyer this year. By the way, of the 11 analysts who cover SoFi, the average target price, about $7.30. Stocks under 5 Kind of hard to believe this was a $28 stock shortly after the IPO. Maybe it's got the naming the stadium jinx. Because they have the name of the stadium on my chargers and some team called the Rams play. Either way, there you go. Illinois Toolworks, VF, Veronis, Public Storage, SoFi Technologies. Reminder, we do this, huh? Almost every Friday here on WEX, though, probably won't have much as we approach year-end and the earnings quiet period segment you only see here for now or on CBC Pro. If you're not a member of CBC Pro, sign up today. All right, coming up, getting a true pulse on the economy from the C-suite and a truly global company. CNH Industrial CEO Scott Wine with his outlook mid-recession worries globally and what has been a great year for that company's stock. Plus... Results from the latest CBC Technology Executive Council survey. We are back in 60 seconds. 
Now, welcome back to some exclusive findings from our CNBC Technology Executive Council. In a new survey, nearly three quarters of members say their company is better protected against cyber attacks than they were this time last year. Of course, that protection has come at a cost, with about 87% of these tech leaders saying they are spending more money to protect their business from ongoing threats. Probably no surprise there. All right, now let's talk about a company that doesn't get nearly the attention it should. They have more than 70,000 employees operate around the globe, help feed the world. It is CNH Industrial. You probably know them better by their brands, KHIH, New Holland Agriculture, and Case Construction. The stock's been rocking lately, up 42% just this quarter. Scott Wine is the CEO of CNH. You might remember him as the former CEO of Polaris. And he joins us now from their tech day, where they are rolling out some very cool new things in ag and construction. Scott, yeah, I know you're a Navy guy. You're an early riser, and we certainly appreciate it. But you operate globally. Your company does not s- sleep. You've got a truly global view, agriculture, commodities. What are you seeing for the world over the next 12 months? You know, Brian, we're surprisingly positive. I mean, I look at the global economy. I'm expecting a recession um, but the ag in markets are quite strong. You know, even in Europe, you know, we're seeing reasonable demand there for across most of the portfolio. Uh, North America, the backlog is as high as it's been. You know, we're up 23% globally year to date, and uh, you know, South America has been really good. You know, you talked about the global nature of the company, and we are surprisingly um, positive about next year. I don't know how long it'll last, but you know, right now, uh, you know, we are expecting uh, to continue to deliver growth going into 2023. Can the, can the world, you came from a purely, almost purely discretionary company, Polaris. Can the U.S. or the world have a macro recession, but commodity markets, your ag markets, can they remain strong even in the face of that? Because Goldman Sachs is continuing to call for a commodity super cycle, Scott. You know, we do look at a lot of historical data. We trade much more on the ag cycle than we do on the economic cycle. And right now, soft commodity prices remain strong, unfortunately, because of uh, largely because of the war in Ukraine. And, you know, we do see ongoing good farmer economics. And farmer economics means farmers don't want to pay taxes. Um, buying equipment is a great way to make themselves more productive, more sustainable. Um, and it, it tends to be good for us. So, you know, used, um, used demand is up. There's not much availability. Uh, so we're really um, feeling good about the overall cycle. Unfortunately, it does mean inflation is high. While commodities are high, inflation for the consumer is also high. But the uh, overall demand for agriculture and in most of our construction markets as well uh, remains good. I just got back from Europe last week, Scott, covering their energy crisis. Uh, it, it, nobody was optimistic. Europe is the third world's, you know, world's third biggest economy. But we almost never talk about South America, which everything I'm seeing about South America says it's booming. Maybe with the exception of, you know, Venezuela, they're doing really well. Can you pinpoint pockets of strength? Is Brazil going to be like a big winner for you guys? You know, in the third quarter, Brazil was our strongest market. Uh, We've got a phenomenal team uh, down there. But, you know, across the not just Brazil, but across South America, we see good strength. You know, they're a little bit concerned politically right now. I think it's causing a a, a bit of anxiety uh, with some of the customers and dealers. But nonetheless, you know, we believe the long-term trends for the South American market are very strong. You know, a lot of their exports are going to China. 
China imports about 70% of their food. So I, that, I was there in September and, and really a lot of optimism in the South American market for sure. Yeah, we got we got to get down there. They're buying a bunch of LNG, natural gas. The market's booming. We don't pay enough attention to them. That is a huge market. Scott, all right, you're there at Technology Day. You invited us out there. Sorry we couldn't be there because I want to see an electric combine. You said it could happen. I'm like, there's no way a farmer is going to drive an electric combine. But apparently there is. Can you electrify the farmland and construction? You know, Brian, our commitment to delivering value for customers and sustainability at the same time, and that was on full display at Tech Day. You know, we had a T4, you know, all-electric mid-sized tractor uh, with a lot of autonomy features, uh, just showing the value that we can bring to farmers, um, you know, where they, especially in Europe, as you mentioned, where uh, energy prices are so high. But perhaps more important than electricity, because electricity is still battery technology for our for our larger equipment combines, as you mentioned, it's going to be more difficult. You know, there's uh, I saw read something yesterday about solid state batteries coming around. You know, that's probably a decade away. So in the meantime, you know, we know that we can replace hydraulics with some electrification. You know, hybrid type for lo- for the larger equipment. But mostly, we were excited about uh, launching the first ever liquid natural gas uh, methane tractor. Our partnership with Benjamin allows a farmer to capture methane from his slurry pit clean it right there on his farm, use it in his machine, use it for a generator to generate electricity, creating a, a really a carbon negative uh, footprint when you're using that biomethane. So really excited about what that can mean for farmer economics and sustainability. Yeah. I love that. I got the visual, Scott, capturing tailpipe to tailpipe. And I'll let our viewers think about that one. Scott Wine of CNH Industrial. Stocks of 40% this quarter. Scott, appreciate getting up early, my man. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. Good to see you. All right. Powered by cow farts. It works. All right. On deck, Crossmark's Victoria Fernandez on the signals she says could be showing a bit of a rocky road still ahead. Stick around. All right, welcome back. Good Friday morning. Time now for your WEX wrap-up. Six stories you might have missed. We close in on the 6 o'clock hour. Here we go. Twitter suspending the accounts of several journalists. They've been covering the company and Elon Musk. Musk says the move comes after they've been, quote, doxing him by following his private jet, including, by the way, one owned by Musk. The Senate approving a one-week stopgap bill, giving lawmakers more time to pass a comprehensive package to fund the federal government through the rest of the fiscal year. Shares of Adobe are popping this morning. The company reporting better than expected fourth quarter results and profit guidance. There you go. Adobe, it's up. FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried reportedly making a new application for bail to the Bahamas Supreme Court. That after a judge rejected his request earlier this week, a hearing on the matter reportedly slated for January 17th. Harvard announcing Claudine Gay as the university's new president. Gay will be the first black person and second woman to lead the Ivy League school. And former President Trump teased a, quote, major announcement, a Trump-themed NFT collection. The $99 digital collectible selling out in about 12 hours. Apparently, NFTs are still a thing. All right, let's talk about the markets and whether or not that's going to be a thing in the year ahead. We're pleased to be joined again by our friend Victoria Fernandez, of Crossmark Global Victoria. Good to have you back on. 
All right, we're going to round out the year. Volume goes down. I want to know what's going to, what we're going to look like in three to six months. Where are we headed in the new year? Yeah, well, Brian, you guys have been talking about it during the show today, and I think we're we're headed further down when you look in that three to six month time period. We do think that we're going to see a recession probably sometime around the middle of next year. That's that six month outlook. And a lot of it's going to be driven by the earnings um, that are coming once we now that we've gotten past the Fed meeting. I think we're really going to shift our attention to earnings. Earnings expectations have come down. And when you've got goods prices coming down, but wage prices going up, or continuing to stay higher, you've got to have some productivity in order for those margins to do well. And we're just not seeing productivity right now. So I think we're going to have a tough go in the first couple quarters of next year. The other item, Brian, real quick, I know you were talking about the bond market earlier and it not really reflecting some of the items from the Fed meeting. But remember, we've come down 70 basis points on the 10-year from the high. And that last inversion you get before recession is usually Fed funds to two-year we're almost there. So I think you've got some signals setting you up for some slower growth and, and a shallow, probably, recession middle of next year. Fair, fair enough, Fernandez. But I was talking about yesterday's move because all the headlines are like stocks fall 700 recession fears. Well, the bond market didn't move. But your point is well noted. Bond market leads. It doesn't follow. So it right. sounds like the move it has been making over the last few weeks, that's the tell. Is it not? And if yields keep going down, it may not be telling us something good. No, I think that's absolutely right. And you take the signals you're seeing there with the three months to 10 year inversion, which to us is key. And then, like I said, the Fed funds to two year, which I think we'll see pretty quickly. Then you're setting yourself up for that recession story that's coming. And obviously, you know, equity markets are reflecting the more hawkish tone, not just from the Fed, but from the ECB, from the Bank of England. They're all talking about being more hawkish, going higher for longer. So I think it sets you up globally for some issues. And everyone thought China reopening would be this great boost to the economy. But I think what we're going to see is that it's really not. They're going to continue to struggle as COVID cases go on the rise and people self-isolate. Okay, Crossmark Global, though, Victoria, we got you got to advise your clients to do something. So we think that the equity markets are going to go down. What do we do? Is it is literally cash king? Are we just putting the money in like the sock drawer? We buying certificates of deposits, two year treasuries, Brazilian bonds. What looks attractive? So not Brazilian bonds. We're not going there, but we have been buying okay. some two-year treasuries. But at the same time, we've also been extending duration in our portfolios on our fixed income side. We've been short duration for a while, and it's been very um, good for us relative to the index. But extending that duration is we think we're going to see yields be lower here for a, for a bit. But you don't have to be sitting in cash. You can still take advantage of what's going on in the market, right? We trim on up days. We buy on down days. It doesn't mean you have to take large swings in this market. We would advise against that. But build your balanced portfolio. Put a little bit of cyclicality in your portfolio so when you do have run-ups, you can take advantage of that. But you have to be selective. Lowe's is a name that we've added recently. You look at housing, and it looks like the chart has bottomed there, and it's going to start to do better as rates have come down. So be selective and find some opportunities. Don't just sit in cash because you will miss the upside because no one can time the market perfectly. 
That's well said, and you miss all those good days that we talked about so long. It's a good day, Victoria, whenever you're on. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Victoria Fernandez of Crossmark Global out there in Texas. It's like 4.40 in the morning. Love it. Putting in the work. All right. We're going to leave it there, folks. That's it for us on a Friday. Dow futures down about 1.2%. NASDAQ down about the same. Could be another rough day for the markets. We appreciate you being with us. Squawk will pick it up. By the way, I'll see you on the noon show all next week. Have a great weekend. Squawk is next. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.